thinking about workforce at the end rather than mm -hmm. the beginning and I think a lot of our problems in this regard you know talk about tech talk about Brexit talk about ill health but it's about putting the people stuff first that feels to me to be really important for business and for government as an employer too. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Talking Recruitment Podcast. It's your host Neil Carberry here and I'm about to serve up some thought-provoking discussion with the leading voices in the sector. Keep listening as we delve into the hottest issues in recruitment and staffing right now. Welcome to the Talking Recruitment Podcast from the REC. Every week we look at all the latest insights, perspectives and experiences from across our diverse recruitment industry. Hello everyone and welcome along to Talking Recruitment, the REC podcast. My name is Neil Carberry, the REC Chief Executive. Pleasure to have you with us for another exploration of the issues and opportunities in our uh, recruitment and staffing industry in the uh, and the labour market in the UK. Lots going on as we uh, go into the second quarter of the year at the REC. Do look out for our latest data. Jobs postings data came out in the last week of March and that sort of showed a relatively stable picture, about 1.4 million live job ads and it's roughly been there for most of the last 12 to 14 months. Uh, new job ads rising a little bit over the last month. Interesting considering that our jobs outlook data also shows a, a bit of a turn of sentiment in the last month or so from clients. Not yet getting better in terms of outlook on the economy, but certainly not getting worse at quite the rate it was previously. So maybe that slightly lower and slower economy message is feeding through to the confidence on the client side. And of course, ultimately, we'd expect that to to be reflected in our report on jobs data, which at the beginning of March was showing the permanent market dropping away gently at the a temporary market roughly flat. Having said all of that, of course, that rough flatness and slight drop is from a, a very high level of activity. So REC members across the country still report to me the order books are pretty full and there are big decisions to make about who you work for and the work you take on, which is something I'm looking forward to exploring with today's guest in terms of what does good look like in this labour market. Before we begin, though, a couple of dates for your diary. It is a busy April, especially once we get the Easter weekend out of the way. We have a regional event in Bristol on the 20th of April and one in London on the 25th of April to bring members together with the REC team. We have a compliance uh, assessment preparation session on the 25th of April. Remember that all members have to have completed the compliance assessment by the 30th of June. And on broader standards issue, our standards conference is on the 27th of April, and that's our once every six month update on legal and compliance issues. Now let's turn to our discussion today. I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast Sarah O'Connor, columnist correspondent at the Financial Times. Sarah, welcome to the REC podcast. Hi Neil, thanks for having me. What an absolute pleasure to have you. And back in when I was a young lad, which is too long ago that I, than I care to remember, we used to have a thing called an industrial correspondent. And to a certain extent, I think your work at the FT over the last sort of five to 10 years has, well, I'm sure you wouldn't describe yourself as an industrial correspondent, has picked up on some of the themes that, that we used to look at. Do you just want to introduce what you cover for the FT and some of the investigations you'd be doing? 
Uh, yeah, so I write about the world of work, basically. So I suppose, yeah, you might call it an industrial correspondent. Certainly more recently, there has been quite a lot of industrial relations involved. Um, but yeah, you're right, I mean, at the FT, at the sort of the height of trade union power and miners' strikes, I think there were maybe five industrial correspondents, something like that. I mean, it was at, it was absolutely the biggest you know, story in town for the FT at that time. So, yeah, so I, I write about employment trends, um, kind of macro stuff, but also how is technology changing the world of work? How are regulations changing or indeed not changing, which has been more often the case over the last few years? Um, so all of those things. Um, in terms of investigations, uh, a few years ago, I did a big investigation into a topic that people probably now know about, which is um, textile companies in Leicester, basically a sort of a, a, a sort of economy within an economy in which the, the sort of going rate is maybe £3.50, £4 an hour, loads of sort of health and safety violations. And the strangest thing about that story was was not so much that it was happening, but that everyone knew it was happening and yet it continued to happen. So, you know, agencies were aware, retailers were aware, manufacturers were aware, and yet, you know, it was just proving incredibly hard to sort of change the way work was being done there. Other things I've written about over the years, the way new technology is changing work, so the growth of the gig economy, the growth of sort of algorithmic management and those sorts of things I'm also really interested in. So, yeah, lots lots to discuss, Neil. Yeah, I think that, that last bit about new technology is really interesting because I spe- we spend a lot of time discussing these things. As you know, I'm on the council at ACAS, and when we're, when we're not knee-deep in a, a massive pile of strikes as we have been over the last 12 months, there's something in kind of understanding that just because technology allows you to do something doesn't mean you necessarily should. Mm. Um, so from my perspective, I think one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, you know, looking at everything you've seen and we go from kind of that that shadow economy that everyone knows is there that needed to be addressed in Leicester through to, you know, working practices in major warehouses and algorithmic management. A lot of it comes down to human experience of employees. And where do you think in the labour market we have now the big challenges are for employers? And I'm thinking particularly that you have a, a line of sight on something that I think is very important, which is businesses exist because society gives them a license to operate business creates prosperity, pays taxes to fund public services, but ultimately you exist because society sees you as additive. Um, so there's an element of businesses needing to think beyond the, the short term. So where do you think the big challenges are looking into the next few years and the experience of workers now? Yeah, I suppose I'd probably single out three. I mean, the first one, as we've just mentioned, is technology and how that's changing the way we work and, and the way we managed things are happening so quickly now and it is it is fascinating to see you know you talked about this idea of just because you can doesn't mean you should but I think there is a temptation and I understand it among employers to want to be at the forefront of new technology and you know a lot of these new things whether they're sort of some form of algorithmic management whether they're different ways of of sort of interviewing candidates to get them through the door you know they do promise greater efficiencies greater productivity often the companies that sell these technologies also say that they're they're fairer to workers that they're less they you know they sort of can strip out human bias and therefore you'll you'll also be more meritocratic in the process so i think there's a real temptation to sort of pile into this this new stuff and give it all a go 
And, you know, I'm not completely skeptical about these technologies at all. I think, you know, clearly they are going to become a bigger part of the world of work. But I think we're at a moment where a lot of them are kind of unproven and untested. The companies that make these products don't always really divulge exactly what their algorithms are doing. Um, so to give you a few examples, you know, one of the things I've been writing about recently is the, the massive growth in, um, in using sort of video technology in order to interview candidates. And this is where a candidate will just sit down in front of a screen. There'll be no one on the other side. So they'll record a video, you know, they'll have to answer questions to have a certain amount of time to answer each one. And in, in some cases, no human will review the video either. The artificial intelligence will decide whether that person is a good fit or not for the job based, you know, sometimes on the words they say, sometimes even on their tone of voice or their facial expressions. So this is becoming like really quite popular and quite well used. And you can see why, because, you know, managers otherwise have to use up a huge amount of their time interviewing people. But the issue is that we don't really know what the artificial intelligence is, is, is choosing based on. We don't know often how good the technology is. You know, it claims that it can discern in some sort of slightly magical way who's a good fit for your organization and who isn't. But computer scientists and academics who look into this deeply say that, you know, that's quite a large claim to make. And in the meantime, you know, there have been people who've tested out some of this stuff. So there was a really fun podcast I listened to from some people at MIT in the US where they they tested out one of these video interview systems and they they had the candidate speak entirely in German, even though it was a it was a, a sort of an English job opening and the algorithm was meant to be assessing them in English. The algorithm came back and said, yeah, you should hire her. She's really good. And they even assessed her kind of English language quality as competence. <laughs> she hadn't said a word of English the whole time. Um, so, it, you know, it's just a sort of word of caution that these things, you know, while they, they promise a lot, you know, it's, it's hard to sometimes see under the hood. And these are big, you know, these, are, these algorithms are now making decisions that will affect the course of people's lives, you know, whether you get a, a job or you don't, or even if you get through to the, the next round or not, you know, often companies are using these video technologies to do the sort of the first cut. And so ultimately, whoever they hire will have been seen by a human. But even if you get knocked out at the first cut, um, that's a big thing to happen to you when you're on the receiving end of an algorithm that you don't know how it made that decision. Um, so that's, big... what, that's one example. But I think there are, you know, there are lots of things like that going on now that we need to pay a lot of attention to. There's a big difference between being leading edge and being bleeding edge, isn't there? And I think, yeah, thank you for the opportunity to point members in the direction of uh, the REC's work with the Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation on the use of asynchronous video interviewing, because I think it is a big issue. And of course, a lot of the technology that we are getting at the moment that claims to be AI isn't really AI. It's just pretty souped up automation. And that there's something there in thinking it through what the production model we're now rolling out is. I think for me, and we're doing some work at the moment to launch before our conference on the 6th of July and hold the date and come and join us if you if you haven't already signed up for the REC conference about future models of delivery for the industry, because there's something here. On the one hand, you want easier, swifter processes that are better for candidates and clients. On the other hand, if you make a mistake in the system, it goes from being a small mistake to a very, very big mistake very quickly. Mm, yeah. And I think some of that is about the data understanding at the tops of organizations. 
Mm-hmm. You know, we already know that kind of tech adoption by companies stands or falls on tech adoption by the people in the line who often aren't as involved as they should be by the the, the tech buyers and the IT team earlier. But there's also something here about your point, understanding what the process you're introducing to your business is. Yeah, I know the the kind of the the example of the I think it was Yahoo with the the system that taught itself to sort out all the women within a couple of days mm. five or six years ago is is quite hackneyed but that that is the risk in terms yeah. of algorithmic de- de- decision making you know the bias is is implied by the person who writes it so there's a, a kind of eyes open thing to adopting tech for for this and all the more so for people you already employ in things like managerial technologies as well yeah, I think the other thing I'd say on that is, you know, as well as questioning whether the whether the technology works as as it says it does, it's just having a think about how it feels for for your job candidates to be on the other end of it. Because I interviewed quite a lot of, you know, mostly young people who are going through these asynchronous video interviews to try and get their their sort of first jobs after university, and you know, almost unanimously they they hated it. They find the process quite sort of dehumanizing and disorientating and you know if you think about it, imagine just sitting in front of a screen with no one to engage with no one to sort of you, you know we as human beings we we look at the other person's face to check that they're interested to check that you know what we're saying is something that you know they're following or you know and w- without any of those sort of hints or clues it becomes really quite difficult you know and I you know there were young people saying things like you know they'd learned how to stick a photo of a loved one next to the webcam just to give them something to look at or some sort of reassurance but I think it can be quite a demoralizing process and it also another thing that people said was you know it feels like if they if they don't they can't even devote enough time to speak to me then you know why should I be devoting all this time to them you know and if this is the start of what you hope is going to be a long and fruitful employment relationship it's not necessarily a a kind of wonderful message to be giving right at the beginning and I know the companies that sell this technology always say candidates love it it's more convenient they they say great things about it but just bear in mind that you know they are selling a product here. I think there's there's a couple of things there one is to what extent is efficiency what we're looking for in this process, and I, I remember back in 2020 talking about you know, the fact that you could get into everyone's diaries for a couple of months during lockdown, and kind of the on some of the online hiring that took place as the market ticked up in sort of May, June, July 2020, mm. where you know, the nature of things was that I, as a recruiter, could call you on a Monday morning, and courtesy of video interviewing and online stuff, you could. You know, we could we could have a, a first interview together on the Monday afternoon. You could see my client on the Tuesday or Wednesday. You could do a task and do a final interview on the Friday morning. By Friday afternoon, you'd have a job offer. Yeah. And um, that's fascinating from a pure efficiency point of view. Mm. But if you weren't looking for a job on Monday morning, I in five days flat have put you in a position where you're making a life changing decision and you haven't even had a Saturday afternoon to think about it. To think it through. Uh, yeah. And and so there's there's a little bit, I think, of making sure that these tools are used in the appropriate way at the appropriate time, mm-hmm. that we understand the tools and the, the, the humanity of it. But it's also about let's remember the state of the labour market right now. We are not long on uh, labour supply in the United yeah. Kingdom, or actually in a lot of places, yet the companies 
who have candidate journeys through their hiring that are more engaging are going to hire people and yeah, the less engaging yeah. ones are so there's a little bit of enlightened self-interest to thinking about this in the right way as well i'm, I'm conscious when when i i've kind of dived off on this one because i find the whole thing fascinating and there's obviously an answer in there that we're trying to find our way towards and mm. there's some rec work as i said earlier coming before our conference on how we do that but you know candidate journey is client service for recruiters so there's an element of just remembering that you're that you're acting as your client's representative in that but you said there was a couple of things so i'm gonna yes so we're gonna park tech in one corner of the triangle what are the other corners of the triangle so in the uk the other thing that i think is certainly very interesting to me and something that probably is is kind of weighing on your clients minds would be how the economy is adjusting to to Brexit and to this new kind of immigration regime. You know, it's been really fascinating, I think, to see that actually, contrary to what a lot of people predicted, net migration has gone up since mm -hmm. Brexit. You know, we've got more people coming into the country net than we did before. But obviously, the, the, the kinds of people and their qualifications and the countries that they're coming from have, have changed massively. And it's, you know, I think it's still a, a kind of open question as to how those sectors that had been very reliant on EU migrants who wouldn't qualify for any of the um, skilled visas that are now on offer are kind of adapting to that reality. You know, and I've, I've had some interesting conversations with employers and sectors like you know, meat processing and, you know, some of those those sectors are actually really, really difficult to hire people for understandable reasons. And they've been talking about, you know, changing their shift patterns, thinking about instead of having people effectively on call or having people do, you know, 12 hour shifts for four days on, four days off, those sorts of things, which were very common. You know, can we change things up a bit? Can we do like school hours contracts such that we could maybe attract some some local workers who previously just wouldn't have been able to do the kinds of hours that we were asking for. So I don't know what the answer is and I'd be curious to know what your sense is on that because you, you'll have a good sense as well. But yeah, how, how those sectors of the economy are adapting to the end of freedom of movement, I think is a really important question. Yeah, I think it's quite easy from the policy world to kind of, and there are one or two think tanks who will remain nameless who are given to this, to wave your hand and go, oh, just increase productivity. If it was that easy, I think business owners would have done it. I think I am seeing a, a subtle change. And we're actually seeing it with some some members working with clients to redesign production processes and things like food processing and so forth. Mm -hmm. Where you know one facet is how do you make the job more attractive, which means yeah broadly tends to mean how do we increase automation and reduce labor input so we can raise wages yeah but it also means how do we make sure that the position someone's working in you know can you move a job from standing to sitting for yeah. instance yeah is a, is a classic example i think a lot of this comes down to the willingness of employers to stand back and redesign their business more fundamentally i think in some sectors we're still seeing um and this isn't a criticism of hospitality, say, but we're still saying we shut on Monday because we can't justify it. And whereas the question is really, how do you change your business? Classic example, that would be convenience stores and the national living wage. Mm -hmm. And you will have noticed that convenience stores, you tend to be able to get in villages, you tend to be able to get a coffee now. You can, yeah. often, get, you can often get a sausage roll or some form of warm food. And that is all about trying to find other income streams that mm. are moving towards 
drawing people into the into the store where they might then pick up a few other things. So that I, I think there's something here about how do we how do we encourage managers to stand back a bit and this is my this is my biggest single soapbox is rewriting the mba curriculum because i think the M- mbas in british business schools tend to teach you how to manage how to be a finance director yeah how to be the managing director a little bit of standing back and going well how do we change this process and what do we want the machines to do and what do we want the people to do mm. and and understanding that the smallest building block of an organization is the task not the job so yeah. you, when you're reshaping jobs you might not be losing people or gaining people you might just be asking people to do different things and i think firms are beginning to have that thought process i think in hospitality you do see um some of the big pub calls for instance starting to think about well, what's a career path through my business Mm. And how do I manage people's exposure? But on the flip side, they're also asked of government. You know, my personal closely held belief that everything in the British labour market can be explained by buses. You've never told me that theory, Neil. What's that? So so essentially, the principle is our bus routes don't go to where people work. They go to where people shop. But all the more so, these bus cuts that you're seeing across the country now, if you're if you have a restaurant in a in a small country town and you have members of staff who need to need a bus at half 10 if you cut the last bus back to seven o'clock you've mm. got a, you've got a labor supply problem so there's a whole whole need for integration in in the planning here so companies need to be digging deeper into it but also also local authorities that's why you know, I think some of the thinking that's going on with some of the mayors on skills is really interesting, but it needs to spread out a bit into the bits of the country that don't have mayors. I mean, you yeah. you you pointed to Brexit as a driver. I think Brexit is a driver. I know you're a skeptic of my view that demographics is a big part of it as well. But there is there's definitely a need for companies, and I don't think most of our members' clients are there yet to understand that what we're experiencing now is not a bug but a feature mm. of the system that we now have the labor market will be tight for quite a while yes and therefore and therefore actually it pays to kind of get ahead of it a bit unless of course you're in filling out customs forms in which <laughs> it's a great it's a great time to to be an expert customs forms filler in yeah, no, that's a good point on the tightness of the labour market being a, a bug, not a feature. I mean, you're right. I mean, certainly like in those sectors we were just discussing, which have lost access to workers from Europe, that is precisely what policy was intending to do, right? I mean, that was that was the whole idea to make labour scarce and in some way either force employers to hire more local workers or force them to to automate or or outsource or whatever. But one thing I would say that is is was not planned but has crept up on us, and this is the third thing I was going to come on to, mm. is ill health, which I don't know how much you've already discussed this on the podcast, but you know, clearly part of why we're having labour shortages now is we've got a rising share of people who say that they're just not well enough to work. And you see that in the labour market um, surveys, but you also just see it in lots of other data, including mortality rates. You know, we've, mm. we've just got excess deaths. So something is sort of going awry and it looks as if it started going awry before the pandemic, maybe a year or two before the pandemic is when this started to happen. So I don't think we can blame it entirely on long COVID, although that probably hasn't helped. But that's a huge challenge for employers, you know, both trying to find 
workers at a time where lots of lots of people have left the labor market altogether but also thinking about how to make sure that if you have workers who are who are struggling a bit who are not well you're having health problems trying to find ways to to adapt to that and hold on to them i think is also really difficult i think that's really interesting and maybe bits of it are about kind of the pandemic almost focusing people's mind on it but from a from an employer perspective there's two bits here one is how do we engage people who are not able to work in the ways that we would traditionally ask them to? Yeah. And the other is how do we make sure our workplaces aren't causing this? Yeah. And those are two distinct things. And sort of the third corner of, of, uh, of that triangle is supporting the NHS to reduce backlogs because clearly yeah. there's something in you know the inability to uh, support I mean every business I know has been off- uh, that has offered private health as a benefit mm-hmm. has been offering private health for a benefit for decades and probably has about 25% take up yeah One of the big trends I've seen in the last few years is take up doubling or more um, yeah yeah people are, re- are, are reaching for it looking at the two bits of kind of what employers can do on the first of them about how do we react how do we engage people i'm definitely seeing the beginnings of people thinking differently in the private sector great example in the time wise power list last year of someone who'd been a bid writer in a construction firm for his whole career had a brain aneurysm could work a couple of days a week and they employed him just to sit in an office and yeah. almost act as a a kind of one-stop shop agony uncle for oh, okay. for bid writers who you know because he had a, they had a lot of people writing bids and he was their most experienced bid writer a great yeah. way of using skills i think we're seeing that a bit with people coming to agency work as well i yeah. think it, it's underreported i don't think the flow of nurses in particular to agencies from substantive roles in the nhs can be explained by pay differentials yeah it's about about having control over your hours i think a lot of the time isn't it it's it's about having the right to say actually no (laughs) yeah that day i've said i'm going to go to someone's wedding you know i have friends who work in the nhs and yeah i think one of the big challenges is just having no control over your diary whatsoever yeah we're having this conversation and just recently the government's announced it's a cutting back on the funding for the workforce elements of the social care package it announced in 22 and that kind of calls out that certainly government as an employer and i think some businesses are in the same place thinking about workforce at the end rather than Mm -hmm. the beginning and i think a lot of our problems in this regard you know talk about tech talk about brexit talk about ill health actually I'm, I'm building towards one of my hackneyed one-liners but it's about putting the people stuff first mm. that, that that feels to me to be really important for business and for government as an employer too because if you look at the teaching workforce the uh, healthcare workforce there's a real sense that they have been squeezed little by little by little over a decade or more mm. and and there comes a point at which there is no more and you actually need to kind of react to that both in terms of the employment relations challenges they're facing at the moment and in terms of the, just the experience of what it is like to work in in one of these places i think it's part of that then that puts a lot of pressure on companies to 
to think about experience and I think it's fair to say that the that the kind of expectations on companies because it doesn't seem to be very much coming down the track from government right now. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, and you do see, you know, quite a lot of employers trying new things and trying to change the way they do things. Um, so I think, you know, um, employers are trying their best, but but it's tough, right? I mean, it's not it's not an easy time to be an employer either. And I think your I think your kind of your big point is right, which is that since the financial crisis really although we've had employment sort of rising to quite high levels it's always been relatively easy to to find people when you need them and so sort of adapting to a world in which that's no longer the case i think just has to has to really change the way you think about your workforce from the from the bottom up yeah i think for us you look at some of the kind of models that have developed in recruitment you know the Managed a service provision model, MSP model, whereby you have a single contractor that's managing a supply chain of agencies. That's entirely built on squeezing the margin. Mm. And we're not in an environment now where you can squeeze the margin. You can't squeeze the margin if you also want serious EDI outreach, for instance, which I think clients increasingly do. So it's going to be interesting to see the way it goes. But I mean, I wanted to finish by asking you about our sector and less so about permanent which is you know we do about a million people into permanent jobs every year in the sector but a million temps onto the site every day and because temps are recurring revenue that means temps are about 80 percent of the revenue of the sector in the uk Mm. so agencies are big employers themselves and i know you've done some work in bits of the supply chain warehouses and so forth so the sort of target audience for this podcast is agency managers and recruiters who are on the drive home from the office Mm. so if we pull it together for kind of that audience where do you think the challenges are to agencies in terms of making sure that temp work stays part of the solution and avoids being part of the problem yeah i suppose you know in my conversations with agency workers over the years i mean clearly there are you know very good agencies that treat their workers very well and there are people who actively seek out agency work for any number of reasons but I have talked to quite a few agency workers over the years who have had bad experiences from agencies and you know often the things that come through are they're sort of the basics like it's amazing how often people say my payslips are never right they're never right the hours are never right the numbers never add up when I try and talk to someone to sort it out I get stuck on the phone for several hours. You know, those sorts of basic things, it's it's surprising to me how often people just have a, a really bad experience of that. And I think in a loose labor market where you've just got plenty of people willing to come in, do it for a few weeks and then get fed up and leave, that's one thing. But in a tight labor market, I think those sorts of basic issues can really sort of alienate people and can become a bit of a problem mm. plus of course it's you know it's just no way to treat people the other thing i suppose around agency work and this is maybe tied up with the with the point around brexit and the end of freedom of movement but there was a sort of a, a model in in some agencies of, of basically kind of having people on effectively zero hour contracts and just giving them very little notice of when they'll be needed you know a text message the night before shift is coming or you know i've interviewed agency workers who they might be on on a on a line in a food manufacturing place and then halfway through the the night 
the demand has dried up or whatever and they're just they're just sent home but actually to your point about buses there's no bus until seven in the morning so you would have agency workers just sleeping in the canteen for four or five hours in order to get the bus back home and then they'd have to wake up again by 10 to check if there's a text message from the agency telling them where they've got work that night or not and you know this is just not the kind of work that you can build a life on and maybe it was sort of maybe it was possible to use these sorts of ways of treating people when you had a kind of constant supply of fresh workers from the EU. But it's not, I just don't think that's sustainable now, nor do I think it was the right way to treat people to begin with, to be honest. So those are the things that I would sort of challenge the agency world with, I suppose. And now I'm not by any means saying that all agencies treat their workers that way, but those are definitely the sort of recurring stories that I've heard over the years. I think that's really interesting. And of course, one of the things about EU workers in certainly in the early years was the effort bargain was pretty clear, which is you were building a life on it because you were sending the money back. Yeah. And the pound was that far in advance. Obviously, there's Lottie at that time. Um, but that kind of effort bargain doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Um, and, and people, so there's something about people going in with open eyes and about agencies being clear about the experience of working through them. And I think we've seen some really interesting efforts from some good uh, firms on this over the last few years, but some of it actually falls on the REC to talk to the client side about almost fair charging rates. Yeah. Yeah, because because there, there's an, certainly in the last year, because of this tightness, we've had a really clear trend of agencies sacking clients because clients have reacted in one of two ways. They've either understood the labour market and they've uh, raised wages and addressed the margin to try and make sure that what they're offering is sustainable and attractive, or they've gone the other way and actually tried to squeeze the margin. Mm. And we've seen agencies walking away from clients. And I think actually, Agencies have to have the bravery to do that yeah. uh, because leaving aside the kind of the human angle of doing the right thing, also on those kinds of margins, commercially it doesn't make any sense either. You just, you know, you, you're just buying activity. So the, there's a lot in there that your point about doing the basic things well, I ap- absolutely resonates with me. You know, it's why we do the compliance assessment every couple of years at the REC and it's the, I think it was Paul O'Connell, the Irish rugby player, who said it's important to be the best in the world at all the stuff that requires no talent. <laughs> yeah. And and that thing about you know, kind of human interaction, there's some really interesting stuff going on in America with fast growing agencies who are just using their technology not to make consultants marginally more effective, but to give uh, candidates a much better experience, agency workers a much better experience. And I think that's where we need to be as an industry. So that's, I think that's a good challenge and an interesting one. And I get a lot from REC members of frustration where when there's maybe an incident where an agency falls down because the importance for us is that it's a professional service and it should be a professional service for workers just as much as it is for clients. Mm. Mm. Sarah, I loved that chat. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Neil. Always nice to talk to you. It's a real pleasure. And thank you to all of you for joining us on this edition of Talking Recruitment. If you've enjoyed this one, why not dig into one of our recent episodes in the back catalogue? The last episode, episode six, 
for 2023 was with Dr. Fiona Aldridge of the West Midlands Combined Authority on Skills and Local Leadership. And I got buses into that one as well. And episode five for 2023 was on health and support and what you can do with your benefits package to engage and support your staff with our friend Steve Johnson from Mars Mercer Benefits. Hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the podcast. And I look forward to you joining us again on another episode of Talking Recruitment, the REC podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Join me for another episode soon, and check out our back catalogue at rec.uk.com to catch up on some other fantastic discussions that are really helpful for recruiters. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, so subscribe to REC Podcasts to never miss an episode. Thank you for listening today. I hope you took away some valuable thoughts from this discussion. If you'd like to hear more, head to rec.uk.com forward slash talking recruitment or follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. Simply search Talking Recruitment to find us.